Hi, I'm Jennifer Gassich. And my name is Mateusz Benko. This is the Let's Talk Ecosystems podcast. From activists to entrepreneurs, leaders to practitioners, we will learn how young people are making a positive change for our planet. In this series, we talk with change makers who are taking action to restore and protect nature as we move forward in the United Nations decade for ecosystem restoration. Mateusz, how are you today? I'm good, thank you, Jennifer. What about you? Not bad, thanks. Not bad. Actually, so-so, because I just read a statistic the other day about our consumption of plastic during the pandemic. Any guess on how much it increased during that time? Did it actually increase? I really didn't know, but... Unfortunately, yes. Then Take I a guess. Say maybe 50%? Well, um, I would go a little bit higher. Try again. Double? Well, according to an article in The Economist, consumption of single-use plastic grew by 250 to 300% in the United States alone. That seems totally out of control. Oh, indeed. It is quite bizarre, to be honest. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, we are very excited to talk about this and much more today with our guest, Benjamin von Wang. Benjamin is an artist focusing on amplifying positive impact. Its mission is to help make positive impact unforgettable. Welcome, Benjamin. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. It's going to be a great podcast. I'm pretty sure about that. I'm excited. I have a first question to you. Why why art at first? Did you dream about it? Did you dream about it when you were a kid or how did you come up with it? (laughs) I'm actually an accidental artist. Uh, I started off my life studying hard rock mining engineering. Uh, So on the opposite side of the environmental movement, really. And I became an artist uh, completely by mistake. It started off by buying a camera after a girl broke up with me while I was in Winnemucca, Nevada, because I just needed a new hobby. And it just so happened that it became a hobby that I really enjoyed. And then I became fairly good at it. And then I finally got paid to do it. And before I knew it, it was something, it was kind of like a side job. And three and a half years into my career of being a hard rock mining engineer, I realized that I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to be an engineer. And so I started traveling. And it just so happens that being able to teach photography and do photography while traveling was a great way to earn money so that I could travel more. And before I knew it, it became my full-time career. And uh, 10 years later, here we are now. I wonder, did you actually thank that girlfriend about that, that she broke up with you? We haven't really spoken since we broke up. So I don't know. Maybe it's time to do it. <laughs> well, then, I was wondering, how does hard rock mining uh, engineering, how does that experience connect to the work that you're doing now? I know you have a background in engineering. So how does this connect to the work you do now? And how does it benefit your work as an yeah, artist? So, so I guess for context, the work that I do right now is I build large-scale art installations. I photograph them. I create campaigns around them and essentially bring a whole ecosystem of players together in order to bring these larger-than-life pieces into existence. 
And I think the main skill that has been helpful for me is simply problem solving, right? This ability of taking a big complex thing and breaking it down into smaller and smaller parts. And with my projects, that's what they are. There are these huge campaigns and I do everything from concept development to finding clients, to marketing, uh, to, to building the thing, to launching it, to managing budgets, managing people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you learn so many of those skills as an engineer. On the mining side of things, I don't think any of that was really helpful. I just heard an interview of you and you said that you consider your work 85% entertainment and 15% education. How significant is this 15%? Well, I mean, the 15% is kind of the backbone of what we create, right? When you look at my work in general, it's made out of a lot of waste material and the messaging that is there is, you know, pretty much the core subtitle because we want, I, I want people to pay attention to something, an issue, but I also want them to pay attention to it with a sense of curiosity. It's one thing to say like, um, here's a piece of information and it's another for someone to look at something and go, wait a minute, tell me more, what is going on here? And this ability for art to lead with a sense of curiosity is something that I really try to do. And so as an example for the listeners, if you put a mermaid on 10,000 plastic bottles, or you uh, create an art installation out of 168,000 plastic straws. People are like, whoa, 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 well, you did what? Um, and that gives us a chance to talk about, you know, what we did, how we did it, and then most importantly, why we did it. But we don't lead with the why as much. I mean, that's kind of a subtext and an undertone. But the goal for me is to increase the size of the funnel. I want to draw new people into the conversation. I, you know, I don't need the Nat Geo crowd, the people who like BBC Earth. Like these are folks who already care about the planet and already know about the issues. But what about the rest? How do we make the topic of conservation, regeneration, restoration more exciting for the everyday person? And that's what I try to do. And so the 85% entertainment I think is important to draw new people into the conversations. And I think the beauty of this strategy is that for the folks who are already activists, it gives them a new tool to use. They have a new image, they have a new video, they can engage and they can make it 85% about the, you know, the, the message and 15% about the entertainment, right? They, they can take this resource and remix it and use it however that they want. But as far as my strategy goes, I'm always trying to think, how do I draw more people into this converse conversation? Because we need everyone to care just a little bit more. Well, I will fully admit that I'm part of that National Geographic <laughs> de demographic and BBC Earth fan, but I understand what you mean by drawing new people in. And it's a really good point. And I've seen your work in action at the Toronto exhibition. I saw the massive uh, turn off the plastic tap. It was incredible. Congratulations on, on having that there. And I saw how you literally drew new people in. Those were a crowd of people from all walks of life who maybe were not naturally interested in environmentalism. So can you walk me through the story of the turn off the plastic tap and its journey around the world and how it's drawing people in, as you said? <laughs> I'm gonna try to figure out how to summarize the story. The first iteration of the giant plastic tap was funded by the Canadian embassy in Paris. And the original idea was for me to fly to Paris and create a piece there, engaging their local stakeholders and creating a piece that was relevant to the local community. However, little thing called the pandemic happened, which you may have heard of. 
And that completely threw our plans into disarray. And I counterproposed, what if I just built this in Montreal where I was at? And we built it in a way that could be shipped and traveled around the world. And that's sort of where the concept of the giant plastic tap emerged. The giant plastic tap, the concept, the visual behind it, so for those of you who haven't seen it, it's kind of like a 30 to 40 foot tall giant faucet with plastic coming out of it. And the messaging actually stems from a phrase that was used by nonprofits around the world for the last couple of years. And that was, we need to turn off the plastic tap. The analogy is, if a bathtub were overflowing with water, you wouldn't start by cleaning up the floor and mopping things up and trying to make sure that you know the floor was as dry as it could be. You would first off start by turning off the faucet and, and stop flooding the entire space. And I think that's kind of what's going on with plastic because each and every year since the inception of plastic, plastic production has only gone up. And so all these kind of ocean cleanup efforts are really not going to save us if we don't get to the root cause of the problem. And so the art that I created was a response to a need that I heard from nonprofit and coalition groups that were trying to you know, address a systemic issue of plastic production. And I think that's a lot of how my work and art is informed. It's how can I use art as a communication tool to empower other people in the movement to do the best work that they possibly can. And we created this first version. It went out. Um, I reached out to 10 different nonprofits from WWF to Greenpeace, Big Free From Plastics, and invited them to use this iconography. I found dozens of influencers to remix the giant plastic tap into different Photoshop montages. Um, and we, we did, a, I think, a fairly decent job launching it. And things got particularly interesting when I had the opportunity to recreate this at the United Nations in Nairobi, Kenya where 1,500 delegates from 193 different countries came together to negotiate a global plastics resolution. This giant faucet that I had originally created uh, was recreated at this event. Uh, this time it was four stories tall. We hired folks from the slums in Kibera. We created, we collected over three tons of plastics. We hired local manpower. We fundraised over $100,000 for the local charity that helped us collect and build the faucet. And, you know, Delegates from all around the world were taking photos in front of what was essentially a towering symbol of the plastic problem and why everyone was gathered. And so, you know, this iconography has now had the privilege of being a part of the global conversation and um, has since now hit, I think, eight different cities. Um, there are four different versions that have been made, and I think they're going to continue to travel. And I think this is one of the powerful things about art is like so long as it speaks to an issue that is still relevant, it, the work itself will continue to be relevant. And so for artists out there that might be like, oh, it's so hard to make a living as an artist. How am I even supposed to be an activist on top of that? I would argue that by creating work that is relevant to issues that are systemic, that need conversations to continue, you're actually creating work that is relatively timeless. And, and, and it's not built on the same novelty cycles as so much art and entertainment actually is. So I guess that's like a quick story of the giant plastic tap. <laughs> it's an it's a excellent story. Uh, I found it quite difficult to be able to transmit sometimes quite complex environmental problems through art. I have seen also one of your projects was focusing on climate equity. What were the other environmental problems that you were asked to explain through art? 
I mean, I try to do, I, I've done a lot of projects around overconsumption. So using fast fashion, so making the world's tallest closet to represent how many clothes we might wear in a lifetime if we never discarded them. We've created projects out of electronic waste to talk about how we need to use past resources to power ourselves into the future. Um, I've used storms as a metaphor for climate change by going storm chasing, as well as I think tying a model down underwater with sharks swimming around to talk about shark conservation. And so I think, yes, it's really hard to find ways to create symbols that are compelling to people. And I think that is exactly why we need more of it, because they're hard to do. And so we need people who are curious about the problems, who want to be engaged in the conversations, who understand the needs of multiple stakeholders, and who are able to translate that complexity into aspects of simplicity that the everyday person can understand, right? So much of the problems that we have today isn't about whether or not the information out there exists. The information is out there. The question is, how do we get people to understand it? How do we get them to feel engaged? How do we get them to want to play? And, you know, I'm not saying that art is the only way to do that, nor am I even saying that art is the best way to do that, but I am an artist and this is what I know how to do. And so I'm trying to do the best I can with what I have. I think regardless if you find yourself in a position of law, an entrepreneur, in a nonprofit, like there is something that you can do. You can look at where the need is greatest, where other people aren't filling that gap, and do something different. It's the harder path, but I also think it's the more rewarding one and the more meaningful one. Well, Ben, you mentioned storm chasing. Now, mm -hmm. I do think on your website, I saw a little video. I want to hear more about the impact that your work and photography with storm chasing has on the audience and does it resonate with them more this idea of seeing the storms and connecting it with climate change tell us more about it <laughs> you know it's always it's hard for me as the artist to talk about what the impact is because uh, I think it should be you talking about the impact that it had on you when you saw the images, right? Um, so much of art is the dance between um, what the artist is trying to say and what the viewer is ready to receive. The concept behind this project was really to show that climate change doesn't really care what you believe, don't believe, are doing, don't want to do. And so what we did was for two weeks, uh, I teamed up with a storm chaser. There are actually people who do this professionally. This guy's name is Kelly DeLay. And he took us storm chasing for two weeks. Um, one of my uh, assistants that came happened to have a used ambulance, which we use as kind of like a storage unit. So we would drive for hours chasing after these storms. And these storms are moving at like 50 miles an hour with a bunch of props inside of the ambulance. And we would position ourselves for a photograph take all these props out of the ambulance, position them in front of these massive supercells and try to take the best photos that we possibly could. And it's just like one of those things where it's, it's so haphazard, right? Nature is going to do what nature does and you're just trying to do the best you can to get in the right position. Um, and we created a whole series, everything from a person uh, reading the newspaper on a toilet, which we found on the side of the road, to um, a sofa, that, another sofa that we found on the side of the road, or you know, person playing video games or a person ironing their laundry and just kind of saying like climate change doesn't care what you wear today. Climate change doesn't care what's on the news today. Climate change doesn't care. Like climate change is going to happen regardless. And so, you know, this video got a couple million views. It got picked up by big publications like Gizmodo. And I think as with most things, the reviews are always mixed, right? You're going to have people who love it, who think it's like the best thing ever. And then you're going to have other people who just go like, 
well, storms have always happened. And so I don't get it. Like this is, this is just like a waste of time and energy and effort. Like why are you creating art like this? And I think it's important to realize that whatever you do is not going to work for everybody and it's going to work for some people and for the people that it works for, it's really valuable. And so, yes, I think there's like a certain amount of feedback that's always valuable to receive and listen to. And to also realize that like most people don't actually say anything. Most people who share something might not have a comment associated to it. Most people who feel something will just leave feeling transformed and they're not going to say it. And so this, need to measure the impact of art, I think is really tough. But I also think it's sort of futile in the way that if I were to create a machine that would measure how much you loved your partner or your spouse simply by the hours of eye contact you had or the volumetric, uh, the, the way your heartbeat increases when it's around them, like I don't think you really get down to the essence of what it means to love somebody. Um, and so not saying that we, we shouldn't pay attention to metrics and indicators of success, but there's only so much we can do. And the other half of it is just doing the best that you can and trying to create something that resonates with people and constantly recalibrating. In that kind of spirit, can you tell us what are the main challenges you've been facing as a conscious artist? <laughs> well, I think I can respond to that from a couple different directions. Like, of course, I can talk at it from the perspective of an artist and that will be like, oh, well, I need to find more partners who want to give me more money so that I can do more things. But maybe I'll just talk about it more from the human level. So I've been basically a nomad for over a decade. And there are like three challenges that I realized that I've been facing personally. I feel like as someone who travels all over the place and has friends all over the world, what I am lacking, though, is like real community, depth of connections with people um, so that I can feel a sense of belonging. The second thing that I'm missing are teammates. So I'm constantly going on different projects in different countries and I have different people that come from time to time. But really, I don't have people to commiserate with and work with on a regular basis. And that can get really lonely. And then the third thing that I feel like I'm missing in my life right now is the ability to create work at a high enough frequency. And so I create one or two projects a year. They're usually quite impactful. They get seen by a lot of people. They get used by a lot of organizations. But I don't feel like I'm creating at, the at a level that is commensurate with the privilege that I have of being an artist. Like I want to create more work with higher frequency with more people. And so these three things that are missing in my life has, have actually led me to moving back to Montreal, at least for a short period of time. I'm starting a nonprofit here, uh, an activism studio, where I hope to build community and find some teammates and create work at a higher frequency, hopefully in one month iterations. And if this idea works within six months to a year, I'd actually like to franchise it out to a place like New York um, and then hopefully other spaces and to create what essentially might be a social franchise where other activists can be incubated. Because there's this idea that like, as artists, we always try to be as successful as possible. And success as an artist usually means you need to be unique and different, that no one else is doing what you're doing. And I think as an activist, you kind of want the opposite. You want as many people to copy you as possible. And so somewhere in here, if I can find a way to make it more sustainable for more people to become better activists and for them to all feel empowered to use art as a tools for their trade, I think that would be a success. So the three things that I'm missing and how I'm trying to solve it. Well, we heard that you recently went to uh, the Burning Man. 
Oh. <laughs> Is that true? I did can go you to confirm that. Room. I can confirm. Okay, wonderful. Well, first of all, did you go as a visitor or as an artist? And did you get any inspiration from there? Mm. I went as a visitor. This was the second time that I went. And I did leave with a lot of inspiration, but probably not the kind of inspiration you would expect. Many people go to Burning Man for the art, the big art and so forth. I actually went with the intention of connecting better with myself. I've been trying to close the gap between my heart and my mind and my body and the way I relate to other people. And it comes from the place of being extremely intellectual all the time. And if we overthink things, we tend to get very anxious because one can look at the state of the world and all the things that are broken with it and all the ways that we as individuals are never going to solve all the systemic problems that exist within our lifetime. And if you look at all the data, it's all pointing in the wrong direction, but there's some data that's kind of helpful. And anyways, you can just get paralyzed by all of this thinking. And so for me, going to Burning Man was not so much about exploring what art other people have been creating, but rather, how do I listen better to what I want to do? How can I give myself more permission to play? How can I give myself more permission to be embodied and to trust in the process of whatever it is, whatever decisions I choose to make? How can I be more comfortable with being uncomfortable? And essentially, what you know, <laughs> how do I become a better human? And you know, Burning Man is this interesting experiment where 80,000 people come into the desert to build a city from nothing burning a ton of resources and while you know they have like this culture of decommodification really all it means is let's let's um spend a lot of money before going and then we can just give things away for free and we're not going to leave any trash behind we're just going to throw it somewhere else um so burning man is like sort of this temporary festival has a high environmental cost to it but at the same time i feel like so much of life so much of the modern world has a cost to it to travel somewhere to see someone i mean even to go eat out in a restaurant like why aren't you eating at home why aren't you growing your own food like why and and there's just this cycle that we can get into where no matter what we do we're not doing enough no matter what we do we're not we're, we're not doing it correctly and for me i think the way i rationalize it and i'm sure some people might criticize you know the gray the line in which i draw in the sand but for me i think of life as you know we are going to consume resources to be alive right the, the best thing we can do is just to kill ourselves and and then we won't consume anything but that can't be what life is all about so somewhere in there the question actually is how do we make the most of the experiences that we do choose to opt in on how can we make sure to value um, the experiences the gift and the privilege that we have and how can we take that internalize whatever lessons we're able to learn and give that back like fivefold or tenfold? How can we make sure that whatever actions or experiences we choose to live, can we find a way to, um, to share that back with the world? And so I think it's really about making sure that we live life to the fullest consciously and aware of the cost that it has on the environment and on others and to constantly strive to do better. And so that's me kind of like preemptively addressing uh, what I know are many critics of Burning Man. But I think the Burning Man microcosm is the same microcosm as someone, some critics of my work who say, oh, well, what happens to the plastic after one of your art pieces? Don't they just get thrown away again? So like, 
why do you even bother? <laughs> and it's like, exactly, this is the conversation we should be having. If you care about what happens to the plastic that I'm using to create this installation, you should care about the plastic that's created every single day in your house, in your school, in your workplace, and what can we do about it? And so it's all part of the same conversation. I wanna ask you, how do you think we can become better humans, as you said, within the next 10 years, uh, as we're in the UN decade on ecosystem restoration, we all have to play our part. So what do you think we all need to do, including youth, to become better humans and restore our ecosystems? I think the first thing we need to do is to just take responsibility for ourselves and our own actions and think through what we can do. And when I say think through what we can do, I'm not saying like, oh, take shorter showers or, um, you know, go vegan or anything like that. Like, sure, go for that. And think about how your role in a capitalist society that is passively supporting certain systemic problems, like how can you take your position of power and privilege wherever that is and find a way to shift that in the right direction. So I think um, thinking through the roles that we play to contribute to certain problems in society and figuring out how to address that. I think that would be first. The second is, okay, I just said like, not just about uh, going vegan or you know buying a reusable water bottle and all these kind of token things. Yes, that is true. However, I also think there is something to be said about taking control over your own personal choices your, the small micro actions you take every single day and realizing that change is possible, right? So when I did my storm chasing project, it was the first climate change awareness project that I did. I decided after I launched it that I needed to change at least one behavior in my life and that was to go from meat eater to vegetarian. And, you know, it wasn't that my shift was gonna make any difference in the world, but it's about me reminding myself that change is possible and to stay accountable to the things that I was saying, right? So those small actions might not matter, but they actually do matter because they change how you see yourself. They change how you perceive your power to shift the rest of the world forward. I think the third thing that we can do is realize that while the small actions that we take may not feel like much, they actually compound over the course of our lifetime. So if you, I don't know, drink from one plastic bottle a day every single day and you we're doing that for the first 30 years of the life and you stop doing it for the next 50 years of your life. Like think of how much that compounds over time. That is the same with going vegetarian or vegan. Think of how many less animals you would have contributed to killing. Um, you can think of it from a social perspective. If, if social problems are your issue and you, you, you know, the, the thing you want to care about. And it's not about being perfect because I, I think it's unrealistic to expect everyone to be perfect, but it's about seeing how, you can constantly create a forward momentum of progress. And when you take those steps forward, try never to take a step back. Because it's like, if you set a goal of going to the gym three hours a day, every single day for the rest of your life, you're gonna fail. But if every day you just wanna go for a walk, and that's a three minute walk, if you go from three to five minutes at one, at one point, and from five to 10, you know, you're gonna make this the, the progress that you make is only going to build. And so think of it like a ratchet strap. Whichever direction you go, and try not to go backwards. Try not to go in reverse because it gets hard. And the only times these things really matter is when it gets hard because when it's easy, it, it's easy. I think also realizing that the enemy is generally not somebody who's like fighting against the system, but really it's just apathy. It's when people completely disconnect and say, 
nothing I do matters. I don't care anymore. I give up. I have other things to worry about. And so figuring out how, you know, how you yourself process, you know, eco-anxiety and any form of just feeling overwhelmed, paying attention to what you need in order to stay motivated and encouraged, and looking towards your close friends and families. Those are the people that you have the greatest influence on and see how can you help them feel supported and less lonely and less afraid to do things alone? How can you celebrate together? How can you play together? How can you realize that, you know, although change isn't happening as fast as anybody wants it to, it's still happening. You know, I once saw this, uh, and I'm going on a tangent here, but I once, there's this amazing graph uh, that, that's Bill Moyer's movement action plan. And he studied civil rights movements over decades or like how seatbelts were put into law. And, and these movements typically, typically take like 10 years. And you see this curve rising and you see these tipping points. And so, you know, you have these activists fighting, 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 and then a tipping point happens, like a George Floyd-style event happens. And then suddenly there's, like, public awareness rises to the top. And then along with public awareness that rises, public resistance to the issue simultaneously rises, but a little bit less. And then, and then after, like, seven or eight years, you finally hit another tipping point, and change happens, policy change happens, and so on and so forth. Um, but what you notice when you look at this graph is that for most of the life of a movement, for most of the life of an activist, you're losing. That is why you have something to fight for. And so to be an activist or to care about something is to acknowledge that you're going to be losing for most of your life, and that is okay, because you losing is actually you winning, right? You're making progress. Things are moving. People, coalitions are being built. And so maybe that's the fifth point. The fifth point is, like, don't get frustrated at the seemingly lack of progress, of feeling like what, like everyone knows about this. Everyone knows that climate change is a thing. Why is change not happening yet? That is exactly where we're supposed to be. That is entirely normal. Change is happening at the micro level. Change is happening when you talk to people. Sentiment is shifting. It just takes time because we have these slow paleolithic brains um, and technology that moving that's moving on the opposite side at the speed of light. And it's just the way change happens. So stay positive. Things are happening. Um, and find the allies, find the people that lift you up, find the people that inspire you. Because if you give up, then so does, so, so do the circles around you, so. Ben, thank you very much for those inspirational words. Final question for me will not be very easy probably, but it's hard to explain by words ecosystem restoration. I can imagine it is probably even more difficult to explain it by art. Any quick ideas? How would you do it? I think that there are a couple ways to do it. Maybe the, the first idea that comes to life is figuring out, well, ecosystems, there are many, many different ecosystems on our planet. What are the main ecosystems? And who can be representatives for these ecosystems? Or maybe, maybe it's an animal. Maybe it's a place. Maybe it's a thing. If you can reduce an ecosystem down to a symbol, and then you can combine those symbols to represent an entire ecosystem, then you can actually represent what we're trying to protect and what is at threat. I think that somewhere in this conversation, and this is usually like a lengthy research process, like a lot of conversations with different people, if we can find a way to create something in the same way that the polar bears symbolize the melting ice caps, which obviously is a far more complex issue than just polar bears not having places to roam around, then we can actually have that conversation from an artistic perspective because humans aren't logical, rational beings. Uh, if we were, we probably wouldn't be in this mess. And so finding what those emotional lovers are and to meet people where they're already at, I think is a key. And 
likely it's not just going to be one symbol. Likely there's going to be many different experiments that we're going to have to try. But if we try sooner or later, we're going to hit the right thing and, and then change can happen. Well, Ben, if you'll allow me this mm -hmm. one last insight, which of your projects so far is closest to your heart or intellectual brain? And what's next for you? And how do we follow you and keep up with your very fast-paced life? So I love that you split it up between my heart and my intellectual brain. Um, and no one's asked me that before. So in my intellectual brain, I think the project that I'm most proud of is probably going to be the giant plastic tap project, simply because it's the one that's had the greatest reach. I mean, you know, when the U.S. Secretary of State is talking about the plastic problem using your art installation in the background, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, all right, this thing is getting seen. And, and these things just keep popping up in my, you know, in my email inboxes as all these different coalitions are using it. Like that is why I create art. I create art so that it is used so that people can resonate with it. And so I think that's the one that I feel most connected to intellectually. I think from my heart perspective, maybe the one that feels closest to my heart is the one, the, the Mermaid on 10,000 Plastic Bottles series that I created. It's closest to my heart for a couple reasons. Um, one, it was created literally the day after my sister got married in Montreal. And it was a complete haphazard project. My mom had found a mermaid tail designer and uh, she just said like, hey, you might wanna work with this artist. And I said, oh, she's really cool. And I, she's in Montreal and I'll be in Montreal for this wedding. So let's try to do this project. And so it was this project that was kind of haphazardly tossed together within one week. And this project ended up getting 37 million views on Facebook alone. And, and it got seen by so many people around the world. And I think most importantly, it legitimized my desire to be an environmentalist. It showed that it was possible to use art to touch people. And I think since that point forward, it's allowed me to pursue a career as an artist and an activist. So probably in my heart, I think that one would be the strongest one. And in terms of how to follow me, well, we just created a bunch of new social media accounts uh, called Activism Studio on all the platforms, but right now it's empty. So um, either you go there to see what shenanigans we're going to be up to, or you can just search Von Wong, V-O-N-W-O-N-G on Google, and you'll find an infinite number of things. Uh, there's over a hundred videos on YouTube that show how each and every project was ever created. I have a personal Instagram called Von Wong Daily, where... I just post a black and white photo every single day with some thoughts, which have nothing to do with activism directly, but everything to do with just being a human. But yeah, whatever you're looking for, feel free to do it. And if you want to reach out, say hello. I have a little website just for you. You can go to vonwong.info. So V-O-N-W-O-N-G.info. And there's a little form. I basically ask people around the world whether or not they have guest rooms, whether or not they know interesting people that I should connect with. And sometimes I just go crash with them. Or when I'm in town, I just reach out to anyone who's in the same city uh, just to hang out. So there you go. Ben, thank you so much. We will definitely try to follow you. It is quite a challenge, though, because you are so busy. We will do our best, Mateus, right? And for our listeners, we will also be posting all your links in the show notes. I want to thank you for, one, letting us know that change is possible. Two 
reminding us that we can be better humans and you're doing it. And I appreciate all your advice. And three, that, you know, we need to set realistic goals. And I can see that you do that and, and we can all do that. And you've given me a lot of hope and I, and I hope for our listeners too. And this has been really insightful uh, as far as the artistic perspective as well into action and how we can make change. Thank you, you so much, Ben. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much and uh, uh, stay tuned for the next week's episode and do not forget to review us as well as to talk about us on social media using our hashtag generation restoration. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you, Ben. This podcast has been brought to you by the United Nations Environment Programme Europe Office and the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations.